season of elder nominations as we have some elders who will be stepping off the board and we'll be looking and praying for who uh, the next elders of fellowship will be. So would you check this video out? Hello, fellowship. Hello, fellowship. I have an important announcement today that requires your prayer and participation. As a church body, it's time to nominate new elders to the elder board as four of our current elders will be completing their terms of service next summer. In our church governance structure, the elder board is made up of godly men who make critical and significant decisions on behalf of all the congregations of fellowship. We are not a church with elders, we are a church led by elders. The nomination and recognition process are very important to the health of our church family. And here is what we're asking members of fellowship to do. First, please pray for the elder nomination process and discern whether you should nominate someone to the office of elder. Then, if you feel led by the Holy Spirit to make a nomination, please visit fellowshipnwa.org forward slash elder nomination and complete the online form. Read the accompanying document entitled Qualifications of an Elder before making your nomination. Or if you prefer a paper nomination form, you may pick one of those up in the worship center foyer at each campus. The nomination form will be attached to the qualifications of an elder document. Please mail paper nominations to the church office on the Rogers campus to the attention of the elders. The deadline for making a nomination is December 19th. Please pray for your elders as we initiate this process. Our desire is to be sensitive and responsive to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And finally, we would like to thank Rod Easley, Steve Lampkin, Dick Nervig, and Steve Weber for their years of service as elders. They have served the Lord faithfully and diligently during their tenure and have represented you well. When you see them, please thank them personally. Blessings to each of you for your prayers and participation in this phase of the elder nomination process. Thank you. Yeah, it's a gift uh, to get to serve with, with um, serve under these men. So church, would you stand tonight as we prepare our hearts to worship King Jesus? We're gonna celebrate him tonight. We're gonna celebrate the God who loves us. He knows us. So let's sing and lift our voice together.
drums and choirs ring out I'll heaven hear the sound of worship Every nation bring its honors to the King A roar of harmonies tumor to the stage tonight as we prepare our hearts uh, to step into a prayer pause and just to let you in a little bit of, of what that is is it's something we do once a month um, from our prayer team that Tom uh, leads and it's essentially to help create and cultivate a culture of prayer so we were talking back there earlier backstage and um, this isn't a time where, where it's separate from our time of worship this is a continuation of Jesus working in and through our hearts. So my encouragement is for you to just respond to the Lord tonight as, as God uses Tom in um, this moment. So Tom, come on. Thanks, Kyle. Well, good evening. Um, one of the things I was thinking about as I was getting ready is why do we do these prayer pauses? Oh, go ahead and sit, sorry. <laughs> why, do, why do we do these prayer pauses? And specifically, why do we do what we're doing the last few weeks on what we call formation prayers? One is we want to give us a time to just slow down, to breathe deeply, to acknowledge that, God, you are here among us, you are here with us. And we want to acknowledge that and we want to hear from you. And when we're doing the formation prayers, there's two focuses. One is to inform what we believe, and secondly is to affirm what we believe. And so if you look at um, the, um, the schematic, if you look in the middle, it's refocusing on God. And so tonight, we're going to refocus on the goodness of God. I was talking to Nick a couple weeks ago, and as we were talking about these, and he says, I think the goodness of God during the month of, thanks, uh, of November for Thanksgiving would be key. And so that's what we're doing tonight. But we want to also, if you didn't get one of these when you came in, they're on the little round tables. Pick one up on your way out um, and use them during the week. So let's just take a minute right now to just breathe deeply. Maybe take three or four really deep breaths. And as you breathe in, thank God that he's here. Thank God that he wants to speak to you tonight.
was interesting. Several weeks ago, as Nick, or Nick was teaching, and he was talking about what would the Israelites have known about God. And he took us back to Deuteronomy where Moses said, God, show me your glory. And God says, I'm going to make all of my goodness to pass in front of you. And, and one of my questions often is, why your goodness, God? But he says, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And so Moses got to see the goodness of God. And hopefully tonight, we're going to see a little bit of who God is. I was talking to Rodney Holmstrom a few weeks ago, and he made the comment, he said, when I reconnect with God's beauty, wherever I see it, it's my response is, wow. He says, when I reconnect with God's truth, my thought is, yes, Lord, I will follow. And then he, but he said, as we reconnect, as I reconnect with God's goodness, he says, my response is, thank you so much. And so this month, as we give thanks to God, let's start. Um, and so... The focus tonight is God who is good. And so I'm going to break it up into three different or four different pieces. And so the first one, if you'll just kind of read along with me, um, just quietly, and I'm going to stop and let you reflect. How does this connect with where you are? God who is good, there's so much noise today that cries out, God is not good. Do I really believe you are good and that you do good to me? That you have my best in mind? Or do I set out to find life on my own? Take a minute and just sit with God in that. Where are you in that space? Lord, help me to taste, help us to taste and see that you are good. God, who is good, do I see that every good and perfect gift is from your hand, a showering of your love on me to bring me joy and peace? Will you open my eyes to see your radical and persistent gift giving that I may not miss it? because I'm looking for something different. What are the good and perfect gifts that God has given to you recently? Stop and give him thanks. God, help me, help us to taste and see that you are good. God, who is good, do I see your son Jesus as your greatest gift to me, the one from whom all other gifts flow, to bring me from death to life as your ultimate act of goodness? 
There is such goodness in this gift, God. Take a minute to reflect and think about what Christ has done through his blood on the cross. God, help us to taste and see that you are good. And then join me as we declare this aloud together. God, who is good, I declare today that you are good. I declare that you are good to me. I declare that you have nothing but the best in mind for me. You are my God and you are good. Help me to taste and see that you are good today.
and playing the band here. Um, let's pray for the offering together. Oh, Father, giver of all, every good and perfect gift comes from you. We ask you to accept these gifts and use them to your glory. May they bring shelter to the homeless, comfort to the sick, rest to the weary, and hope to the hopeless. As you multiply the offering of fish and loaves, multiply these to accomplish more than we can ask or imagine. We give freely and not under compulsion, for all we have is yours, Lord. Nothing we can give could match your great gift to us, your Son and your Spirit.
the word of God tonight. Hey, y'all. I'm Scott. I'm Cindy. And we are the Thompsons. And uh, it's my, uh, my privilege to serve as a member of the elder team here at Fellowship Bible Church. A um, couple of weekends per month, you can catch us over hanging out with the kiddos. Uh, I lead worship for uh, preschooler and kindergartners. You'll find me and the infants at the five o'clock service. Occasionally, you may find us in the info booth. And uh, we'll be reading from Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord and not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. This is the word of the Lord. And the people said, Amen. You may be seated. Well, good evening, Fellowship Mosaic. It's good to see you guys. My name is Will. I serve on the training center team here at Fellowship. And uh, every now and then, they allow me to do some teaching on the Mosaic team. I'm grateful to be here and uh, spend the evening with you guys as we take a look at Ephesians chapter 6. Got a question for you. How many of you recently have tried to put together a large piece of furniture with one of these? How many cuss words came out while you were doing that? You know those moments where you're, you're given a large bag of components, a bunch of parts, and a set of really confusing directions, and a wrench that's really made for a, a hobbit, and you're supposed to put this piece of furniture together. And if you're like me, oftentimes you, you see this little Allen wrench, and you think to yourself, I'm going to go get some real tools. And have you ever in that process found yourself having to make what I would consider adaptions to the piece of furniture where it didn't really call for a drill bit, but you found yourself in a moment going, I'm pretty sure they just left it out. I'm supposed to drill an extra hole here. In those moments, 
One of your greatest assets is a really good picture. Maybe a picture on the front of the box of what it is that you were trying to build in the first place to sort of bring you back and shed light on the weeds. That the big picture could shed some light on the details. You know, in a similar way, your life will largely be shaped by your view of God. Whether or not you view God as big and powerful or you see him as small. Whether or not you see God as someone who is intimate and close to your life or distant and uninvolved. Whether you see God good and trustworthy as we were led to consider earlier or you see him as controlling and manipulative. Your life in significant ways will be shaped by your view of God. And this is especially true when we come to places in scripture, particularly with passages that deal with relationships. And it's one of the reasons I think we have this incredibly unique structure to the book of Ephesians. That Paul here, as he's writing to a group of Christ followers there in a city of Ephesus in modern day Turkey, He doesn't open the letter and go straight to the content that we're looking at in Ephesians 5 and 6. He doesn't go straight to specific instructions that deal with relationships. No, rather he spends the first three chapters focusing on what it's like to have a new life in Christ that we've received. Focusing on who Christ is and what he's done for us and the transformation that he's brought about in the lives of believers, and the fact that our lives are filled with his presence, with his spirit. But then in the second half of this incredible letter, in chapters four through six, we have this description of a new life in Christ enacted. What does it look like for a group of believers who have received this new life in Christ? How could life look differently. It's almost as if Paul had the foresight to describe who and then what. And you may recall as we've worked our way through this incredible book, through Ephesians, once again, that it's a letter written to a church in the city of Ephesus, and the primary focus is on unity in the local church. Unity between Jews and Gentiles, unity between husbands and wives, unity between children and parents, and unity even between slaves and masters. And so tonight, let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 6 at the first nine verses. And we see here this chapter opens with some instruction to children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord For this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on this earth. You know, here Paul is is really addressing the whole person with his instruction to children. He not only instructs them to obey their parents, which really deals with outward actions, But he also speaks to issues of the heart, issues related to honoring, which is typically an inward response. 
that's sparked by respect and reverence. And he ties it back to the fifth commandment that was given to the Jewish people in Deuteronomy chapter five, verse 16. And as Paul's writing to the Christians there in Ephesus, these instructions here for children, it likely would have sort of hit the ears and hit the hearts of the readers differently. You see, for the Jew at the time, they would have understood a strong link between obedience and honor in the home, fueling an obedience and honor to God. You see, for the Jew, all spiritual instruction began with the home, with the family. And so teaching children to honor their parents and to obey their parents was, was not just so that the home would run more peacefully. It wasn't just a pragmatic view, but literally it was to teach the children at a very young age that as they honor their parents, they ultimately must learn to honor and obey the living God. And for the Jew, they also understood the conditional connection between honor and obedience to God and the land that he had promised them. But Paul here, he's expanding that promise to Gentiles with an adapted application, instructing children to both honor and obey their parents. But then, just like we saw in the previous chapter, where we see this instruction to wives and then instructions to children, Paul continues that rhythm and follows up with some instruction for fathers. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Here, Paul gives two commands, one positive and one negative to fathers. This language of do not exasperate. Paul here is describing a condition of a repeated ongoing pattern of treatment of your children that builds up deep-seated anger and resentment, causing a child to lose heart. There's similar language used in Colossians 3, 21. Modern examples of this, we would see obviously anytime there's verbal or physical abuse from a parent or a caregiver to a child but it also could include things like just repetitive discouragement, over-expectations, or even, sort of on the other side of the ditch, over-protection that would cause a child to lose heart. But rather, in response to that, the, the positive command here is that for fathers, for parents, to train and instruct and the language here is so compelling. It's the idea of taking a child by the hand, teaching, instructing, encouraging, and guiding towards Jesus Christ. Helping that child move beyond our authority as parents to see the authority and the goodness of God. You know, years ago, when Sarah and I, we have three daughters this point. Years ago when Sarah and I were brand new parents, there's that moment for the, when you're a parent for the first time when you realize 
You have no idea what you're doing. And yet you're responsible for this little human being. And I think for us, it was actually the moment, you know, the, the, the buildup in that, that first pregnancy and you're buying equipment and um, putting stuff together with tiny wrenches and you're getting the house all ready. But, but maybe it really hasn't sunk in that like there's a human being that you're gonna be responsible for. And I remember for us, it was the, the moment leaving the hospital and putting Leah into the car seat for the very first time and that click and then walking to the car with, with no nurses and no help and sitting in the car with Sarah going, well, I guess we take this person home now and figure out what to do. There was that moment of slight panic, excitement, but also a sense of, boy, we've really got to figure this thing out. And we were amazed as young parents at the time at how much was written on what, what I would consider was just sort of like behavior management when it comes to, to parenting. And we were kind of going, there, there's, there's got to be something more than just raising a child up and, and, and hoping that they end up okay. And it was about that time, actually a resource that came out of Mosaic that we use frequently in the training center. It's called Win Coach Release that was so helpful to Sarah and I as young parents. And through Win Coach Release, we, we discovered this very compelling approach to parenting that was focused much more on issues of the heart, that was really an expression of the instruction that we see here in Ephesians chapter six. That as parents, maybe our number one job was not just behavior modification, but maybe it was in those early years with a young child to model the leadership of our heavenly father and simply win over the heart of our child. Through relational connection to to earn the trust, to establish rhythms of, of tenderness and interest and listening. Certainly at times to provide discipline, but to focus really the, the, the first almost decade of parenting on winning the heart of our child, earning their trust. And then beginning to, to transition into a season where we could begin as parents to coach the heart of our children, helping them to connect with their heavenly father, helping them understand their own sinfulness, their own need for a savior, what it looks like to have an others-focused lifestyle that looks to the needs of others rather than our own selfish self-interest. But again, to see ourselves as one who could help coach and direct our children towards the heart of a savior who would be the one that would truly bring about transformation in their life. And then finally, and we're not to this stage yet, but then finally to view parenting really as an opportunity to, to release our children, to one day be a blessing on planet earth, to identify their unique giftedness and to understand how God wants to use that to be a blessing to other people. Win coach release. You know, another resource in, in terms of discovering what it's like for parents to train and instruct their children is also a book recently 
that we found so helpful called The Intentional Father. By the way, I've got a couple copies of this, and if there's any, particularly if there's any dads in the room that would like a copy of this and you want to read it and grab some lunch together and talk about it, would love to do that with you. But The Intentional Father by John Tyson is another resource recently that's been so helpful to me to, to, to think of, of parenthood with the end game in mind. To, to look at the, the children that have been entrusted to our care and just consider one of the, the challenges that, that Tyson gives in The Intentional Father is to consider the things that you would like your children to know about life and about God and about themselves as they turn 18, 19, or 20 years old. And then as a father or as a mother, to almost sort of work your way backwards at how might God use me to instill those principles, those lessons, those things, that awareness of God into their lives. And what would it look like with great intentionality not to just drift from season to season through parenting, but with intentionality to invite Jesus into that space and to come alongside holding the hand of my child through development. You know, for me, there's a picture often that I kind of refer to in my mind. It was a good friend of mine, Jared Fincher, that took this picture a few years ago. And I'm actually holding the hand of Allison and Leah as we run down this pathway together. I didn't even know Jared at the time was, was snapping this picture, but it's something that I, I think of often. And there's several sort of features about this photograph that have become to mean so much to me. But, but one of them is even to see both girls, if you look closely, they're not even touching the ground when this, this picture was, was captured. And, and you literally can see the skip or the stride in these little girls as they run with me. And it's just become kind of an image of, of, of parenting here reflected in, in Ephesians 6 of what it could look like to train and instruct a child, to hold them by the hand and lead them towards Jesus. But as we continue on in this passage, we see that not only is Paul, when it comes to relationships, giving instruction for husbands and wives and children and fathers, but then we move to a section where he's giving instruction to both slaves and masters. And I think as we digest this portion of scripture, it's so important to recognize the Greco-Roman culture in which Paul was writing. In fact, Dr. Anthony uh, has a quote here to paint a picture of what it would have looked like for the people there in Ephesus, the culture in which Paul was writing to. Dr. Anthony says, by Roman design, the father had absolute control over his wife, children, property, and slaves. He determined the fate of all within his household. Get this, at the birth of his child, he could choose to keep the baby or expose it in the wilderness if it seemed unfit or was not the gender he preferred. He was seen as the teacher, the lawgiver, and priest of the family, and he took each role seriously. 
This is a little bit different world than we live in today. And as we move into a section where Paul here is gonna give instructions to slaves and how they can live a life that honors Jesus. It's important to note that while Paul does not go so far as to advocate social reform by eliminating slavery in this particular passage, he's gonna do something that was completely unheard of in his day. In fact, the entire rhythm of the previous chapter and here in chapter six, what Paul was doing was unheard of. The fact that he would even address wives and children and slaves shows the dignity and the value that he was giving those individuals. And so as we take a look at Ephesians chapter six, verse five, Paul says, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. It's important to note here the, the, the word fear that, that Paul's describing. This isn't the, the cowering type of fear that we might think in this context. Actually, he uses the same word in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, where he instructs believers there to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. It really is a description of a deep desire to discover and to please and to follow God. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. You'll notice right off the bat that as Paul's instruction here to slaves really lends itself to some parallels to the instruction for children. The, the concepts of obedience and honor. In today's culture, Perhaps the, the closest parallel that, than what's being described here in this Greco-Roman culture would be instruction to employees. Situations where we find ourselves under the authority of another. And many of these instructions that Paul is giving to slaves directly apply to employees in the workplace today. And I think here, as, as Paul is giving this instruction to slaves, if you could just imagine the dynamic of a local church and the relationships that were at stake, what Paul here is, is, is instructing is that a congregation could have both slaves and masters, both Jews and Gentiles, who Jesus Christ was transforming their lives and he's calling them under the banner and the authority of Christ to live in unity. And I think actually this, this passage is even speaking to something that's, that's pervasive in our culture today where so often we can look for an injustice or an offense around every corner. 
And I think Paul here, as he's instructing the the church there in Ephesus, a similar parallel would be that rather than fighting for my rights constantly, that we as the church are to be reminded that each one of us that is a follower of Jesus are slaves to Christ. And in doing so, rather than considering what are my rights to fight for and my preferences, that as a follower of Jesus, we are to submit to the headship and the lordship of Jesus Christ and to consider others more important than we are. But in that same rhythm, as Paul gives instructions to wives and husbands and children and fathers, he also here gives instructions to slaves and then masters. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And there's no favoritism with him. He's instructing the masters in a similar way that he instructs the fathers not to lead by threatening and reminds them that in the eyes of God, there's no social status, no slave and master, only issues of stewardship. And once again, Paul's instruction here to the Christians there in Ephesus They truly are revolutionary. You see, in a Roman household where the father was authoritarian and head of the household, Paul here is describing how a Christian household should function, where Jesus is the head of a new household and we all submit to Christ. And once again, this particular passage of Scripture It reminds us, as we've worked our way through this letter, that a new life in Christ leads us towards wholehearted obedience and a care for other people. And so tonight, in light of this passage, we want to provide some extra space just to consider how God might be speaking to you tonight. Specifically, how might God be leading you to obey and honor those in authority in your life? You know, for me, as I've meditated on some of the principles in this passage for the past couple weeks and considered this idea of how God might be leading me to obey and honor those in authority in my life, it caused me to begin to even evaluate myself as an employee and to consider the men that are placed in authority over me here at Fellowship and to consider how well do I serve my team leader, Chip Jackson? How well do I serve the congregational leaders here at Fellowship? How well do I serve? Do I willingly submit and follow the leadership of our elders here at Fellowship? Are their lives blessed by the way that I obey 
and honor and follow their leadership. It's worth considering in your context. But then secondly, how might God be leading you to show dignity to those entrusted to your care? Whether that's on a personal level with your family, your friends, your neighborhood, or professionally, the employees that maybe have been entrusted to your care. How might God be leading you to show dignity to those entrusted to your care? And just by way of example, as I meditated on these verses these past week, my mind first and foremost went to my family just to spend some time considering how well do I show dignity to my wife, Sarah? How well do I show dignity and value and worth to Leah, Allison, and Hannah? How well do I listen to them and how attuned am I in to what Jesus is doing in each of their lives? And so Fellowship Mosaic, tonight we invite you to consider how God might be leading you to follow him in obedience. we love you. Lord, thank you for the gift of your word and your push to obedience. Father, as we look at you as the king of our lives, Father, the one that's worth serving, Lord, would you stir up our hearts to look each other in the eyes, Lord, to see each other, Lord, not only in this building, but at the grocery store, at the coffee shop, and to do what Jesus would do to serve. We love you, God. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Church, I, I want to take a moment just to kind of give you a little insight to 
uh, of just a, a coaching moment, if you will, of uh, what what just happened is this transition. Uh, if y'all, some of y'all are musical, you might have had a, a little bit of a panic. You said, okay, nobody's out there on stage. What's going on? Um, we call those say laws here at Mosaic. And a say law is an intentional moment to pause and listen to Jesus. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Listen to what God is saying in your life. So oftentimes we'll, we'll do it differently some weeks, but uh, we, we like to try to leave intentional space for you to process with the Lord what he's doing in your heart and what he's doing in your soul after hearing um, from his word. So I just wanted to coach you guys and just kind of let you know that that's a part of our culture here on Saturday nights. It's been that way for a long time. Um, it's fun to, to step into that culture. For now, let's, let's sing. Let's lift our voice to Jesus as we pray to him. I enter 
we love you. Lord, we proclaim that as a church, as the people of God, Lord, that you are great and you are worth following. You are worth serving, Father. Lord, give us grace as we step into what it looks like to be um, your servant, Father. We love you, God. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Church, if you need prayer, we'll have our prayer team uh, down front, and they would love to pray with you, whether it's something um, you really need prayer for that might be um, serious, or we'd love to celebrate uh, life with you as well. We also have some of our team out in the info booth. I love it. I'm holding you guys on. I'm, I'm holding you right here by a thread. Uh, we have some of our team out here in the info booth. They'd love to connect with you as well. Uh, church, let's go in peace to love and serve the Lord. And the people said, thanks, church.